you. Good morning, Conduit. How are you? Jackson, buddy. Thank you for serving so faithfully, Jackson. Good to see you all this morning. My name is Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Conduit. If you are new or visiting with us this morning, or if you're just getting used to Conduit, um, welcome home. It's one of the things that we strive to do here is to have an environment where you feel like you're uh, comfortable and can relax and maybe let down some of the some of the walls and some of the guards that we put up because of just the way that life is, right? Um, appreciate, uh, I don't know where there he is, I appreciate Billy and Eric this week, and then of course uh, Henry and Lauren last week who are kind of like, they're, they're leading for us as Ellen is taking a, uh, just a few weeks, a few weeks off, a few weeks of much needed vacation, and so if you see them or talk to any of those four, um, after service or in your just weekly travels, make sure you um, thank them for serving us and honoring the Lord uh, as they've been leading us the last few weeks. So it, it, uh, I hadn't really thought about it, but as I was worshiping this morning, it becomes a little bit um, or a lot of bit apropos that, you know, like normally we've got a full set of worship leaders up here, right? And the stage is full and you know that. Um, I know you know that because I often hear you say how loud it is, and so um, you're, now you're probably complaining that it's too quiet. I get it, right? Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, as we, as we talk about this morning, the nature of worship, and, and seeing in the life of David how worship played out, at least in one instance, um, uh, we're we're called we're called back to one we're called back to one central truth and one central reality is that is that worship is not about us. When when we worship, it is is not about us. It's not even about our our opinions. It's not about our it's not about our preferences. It's not about, about what we like and don't like. How loud it is, how quiet it is, what music what what instrument is playing or not playing. If we like the song or don't like the song, when we when we begin to hear or ruminate on that, like on that inner monologue of what we like and don't like about worship in the morning, it's really exposing. The Holy Spirit is using that moment to expose in us a misunderstanding of the purpose of worship. Meaning not about what I preferentially like or don't like, but who is it that my worship is aimed at? Who is the target of my worship? Is it my own preferences? Or is it the one who has created it all? Is it, is it the one that, that Paul says to Timothy, dwells in unapproachable light? Is pure holiness from the root of his character all the way to his interaction with us in the incarnation in Jesus? And so I kind of just like preached the whole sermon there for you in just a moment, but I'm going to go home. All right, let's go. Go Bills. Uh, um, 
but being that, you know, worship for us in these last two weeks has been different than it usually is for us, it just kind of recalled that to my mind, okay? Um, so we have been in a series on King David, the life of King David, and uh, we have a few more weeks, we have a few more weeks in that series. Um, next week we're going uh, to talk about the... You know, we have the two most famous things about David, right? We have, what, David and Goliath, and then David and Bathsheba, right? Okay, so we're going to talk, we've already done David and Goliath, we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba um, next week, and then Pastor Luke, the week after, is going to preach um, uh, based on Psalm 51, which was David's, like, psalm, his cry, essentially, after the fallout of Bathsheba and everything that had happened. Um... And, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end our series in David. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to take it out, open it up to the book of 2 Samuel, which is in the front part of your Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, that's okay. There should be some paper copies in the seats next to you. 1 Samuel is in the first quarter of your Bible if you just open it as a book, right? If you don't have a copy of the scripture with you, certainly you can grab one online uh, to your, on your phone if you'd like, and we'll also, have, uh, we'll also have the scripture up here on the screen. Now, last week we talked about how, how David, even in the extraordinary dishonor, in the extraordinary dishonor that Saul displayed towards David, that, that David made a choice to honor a dishonorable man, right? Because, because David was going to, he, he refused to see Saul as anyone except the one that the Lord had anointed. And his honor of Saul came as a, came as a, as a personal choice to entrust the evil that Saul was doing to David to the father. He's like, listen, I could have killed you. I didn't. Instead, I'm going to entrust that the Lord is going to work it out someday, somewhere, somehow. But as for me, I will never lay a hand on you. And, um, you know, later in the story, you know, like Saul ends up dying, right? He dies at his own hand in battle. Okay? And now David has arisen to the formal place as king, um, preceding Saul's reign. And uh, we catch up with David in, um, in 2 Samuel, and here in chapter 6, as he's re-entering the holy city after going off to war one of many times with the Philistines. And there's something that David is doing here. He's bringing something called the Ark of the Covenant back to or into the holy city of Jerusalem. Okay? So, first, or 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, there's 23 verses. I'm going to read them all. And then we're going to um, the, whole, the whole of 2 Samuel chapter 6. And then um, we'll talk about a few of the realities that we see here. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and his men set out to bring the ark up from, or to, to bring up from there the ark of God 
which is called by the name of God, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it before the house uh, of Abinadab. Uzzah and Ahio, son of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord, with songs and harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark, because the oxen stumbled, and the Lord's anger burned against him because of this irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's wrath that had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means breaks out. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Basically like, hey man, I don't want nothing to do with something like this touchy. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, hey, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So <laughs> David was like, well, I'm going to go get that back then. So David went down and brought up the ark, the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. And when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. Now, in case you missed the tone here, right? <laughs> A lot is lost in text messages, you understand, right? Uh, dripping with sarcasm, right? Just dripping with, like, dishonor, disrespect. Like, what in the world are you doing? Oh, how the king has distinguished himself today in the sight of all these slave girls. David doesn't miss the sarcasm in the tone, right? And he snaps back pretty hard. David said to Mike, Well, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house 
when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, don't worry, I will continue to be held in high honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. I don't mean to laugh at that, but it's like, it really points out, right, that her, that her perspective was twisted. And that David's correction of her in that moment, although seemingly to be harsh, like, hey, um, well, the Lord chose me and not your father, probably for reasons exactly like this. Okay. Um, speaks to us, and is a, there's a corrective here. Okay. So there's really two dynamics happening in this, in this chapter of uh, 2 Samuel. The, the first dynamic is there's, there's Dave, the, the dynamic of David's like response and his actions and his celebration before the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Covenant of God, right? And then on the other side, there's this like, there's this death. This death of the guy named Uzzah, right? Who it seemed like the cart was stumbling and the oxen were stumbling and the Ark might fall over. And so he, he put out his hand to brace the ark, and he put his hand on it, and he said he died suddenly. And we have these two, two things that are happening here. And it seems like, well, they seem very disjointed or disconnected. Um, but well, I think they're connected, and I want to make a case for that this morning, um, that these two things are, are really connected. They have, the sa- they have the same basis. Okay? So... Uh, first things first, what is the Ark of the Covenant? All right, what was this thing that was being carried into the city of David? What was the thing that all of Israel, it says, was dancing and celebrating for that David apparently was making a fool of himself before, um, in front of? Well, the, we, could, we could talk a lot about this, but for sake of brevity, we'll say that these, these things. The Ark of the Covenant was essentially a large box, a large ark, you know? Yay wide by yay wide by yay high or so, okay? It was covered in gold. It had a lid on it, right? There was two long poles that went in metal hoops that men would carry the ark around in, right? On top of the ark was the picture or uh, the statue of two cherubim or two angels, right? Whose wings were stretched upward and who essentially cast a shadow over the top of the ark, which was called the mercy seat. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, or the day we just actually had it a few weeks ago, right? Uh, if, you, if you follow Jewish holidays at all, it's called, the, it's called Yom Kippur, which is the most holy holiday of the Jewish nation, right? Where the high priest would once a year go into the holy of holies in the temple or in the tabernacle and he would sacrifice an animal and make sure that the blood of the sacrifice came down upon the top of the ark it was the mercy seat or the altar or the place upon which atonement for people's sin was made now this was the ark was the most, even now, even remains even today, 
the most holy symbol in all of Judaism. Inside of the ark, inside of that box, is said to be um, the tablets of the law, or like Moses coming down off the mountain, right? Hey guys, got this thing for us, right? Where are those things now they are said to be inside the ark of the covenant? Also, a jar of manna, representative of God's provision for the Israelite people in the events of the Exodus. Additionally, Aaron's staff. You know, Moses' right-hand man, Aaron, had this staff. Aaron's staff is said to be in, um, in the, the ark. The ark was meant to, and did, for the people of Israel, symbolize the presence of God among the people. It went with them wherever they went. It went before them into battle, right? It was used as a, it, it was like signifying and symbolizing the very presence of God with his people. Now David, David wanted to build a temple to put the Ark of the Covenant in, a place where the presence of God could dwell. A permanent place. It was like David, like, man, I really want to do that, God. He's like, your son's going to do it. You're not going to do it. Your son's going to do it. All right? Um, later, the ark would come to rest and come to be, have its, its, its place um, in the nation of Israel, in the Holy of Holies, or in the temple that one of David's sons, Solomon, would end up building. So suffice it to say, all right, the Ark of the Covenant was the most holy, sacred, precious thing that the Israelite people had ever known or would ever know. It symbolized the very presence and nature and holiness of God. So we have David dancing and celebrating before the Ark. Now over here on this side, we have this guy, right, who dies suddenly after he puts his hands out to hold the ark, presumably, from falling over. Now, I don't know about you, but this can be, for me, a little shocking. Because you and I, we don't, we don't really have, like, an understanding of or a concept of um, items so tremendously holy that by touching them, we, may, we, 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 we run the risk of just flat out dying. We, we, we typically run in, comparatively at least, in very irreverent ways. Right? We... We don't have an understanding of why in the world would this happen. Because you and I, we experience, right? We experience primarily a relationship with God through Jesus. That's, that's how we experience the Heavenly Father. We experience, we experience God through Jesus. And we, we approach Jesus not normally as this exceptionally holy character dwelling in unapproachable light, right? With infathomable and eternal power. We approach Jesus and he approaches us as 
forgiving and gentle and kind as relatable, right? And even as a friend. Jesus is a friend. He is close. He is gentle and kind. In fact, in fact, people were healed when they reached out just to touch him, right? They didn't, they didn't die on the spot of like holiness poisoning, right? It was actually something that was, was acceptable. Now, this has the possibility to like really, like, we have to, we have to change our pattern of thinking. We have to change our perspective. We have to change our perceptions of who God is and how you and I have come to know God. You and I have come to know God, yes, through Jesus. And Jesus, in his, because he is the incarnation of God in flesh, right, gives us access, spiritual access, to the holiness of God himself. He is the, uh, for lack of a better term, he is the access door to the Heavenly Father. Now, without Jesus making atonement for my sin, taking, taking my sin to the cross, his blood being shed, his body being broken, without Jesus making that atonement for my sin and yours, listen, the only God that you would know is the God of raw holiness. That Jesus has made the God of unapproachable light, unfathomable power, um, unimaginable holiness, that Jesus has made that God approachable. That Jesus has become the door to the holiness of God, showing us the heart of God. And so, when Uzzah, not having anything other than the raw power of God's holiness there in that moment, reached out, even in with the best intentions, to control... (laughs) The presence of God symbolized in the ark, it was like the holiness of God came so strong and so fast and it is so unfathomable and unapproachable that Uzzah literally died. Like, well, that's really unfair. He was just trying to be helpful. Yeah, maybe, okay. But even that like internal monologue that we have about like that's just so unfair. It exposes in our hearts how how infinitely separate and far away from understanding the magnitude of the God of creation that you and I are at. Because we primarily have been discipled in the, in the like, in the pathway of God is my friend. Jesus is my buddy. We talk all the time. 
Yes, and that is right and good, and Jesus is your friend, and you can talk to Jesus, but understand that it is, it is because of Jesus that you have access to a Father whose, whose holiness demands, right, this gap between sin and himself. The holiness of God, which is essentially what killed Uzzah that day. The raw holiness of God is and should be shocking to us. It should be absolutely shocking, overwhelming. Right? There, there's a reason that the scripture says no one has ever seen God and lived. There's a reason that even Moses, when, when God was going to come by him on the mountain, was like, let me close my eyes for a second here. But it was in that, in that moment that the holiness of God coming so close and so strong, he had this sense of like, I better get as low as I can, as fast as I can, and cover my face because woe is me, I am an unclean man. See, holiness, when we talk about the raw holiness of God, we're not talking, we're not using holiness as some just like benign spiritual term. But we're talking about like at its core, holiness describes being separate from something else. And when we talk about the holiness of God, what we're talking about is like that God essentially is not like us. We are not like God. And this scripture that I've been quoting to you a couple times all morning, or this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, where, where Paul is, um, he's his protege, Timothy, right? And he's, he's training him, he's encouraging him, he's doing everything that he can to make sure Timothy is well-equipped. He says this to, first, uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 13 through 16 says, In the sight of God, Timothy, look. <laughs> In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of the Lord Jesus, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone, alone, is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. You know why? Because they'd be dead. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Paul is describing for Timothy here the, the absolute holiness of the one. This is the one who, who before all that existed, himself exists. And that, and that by virtue of the words of his mouth, all that is created, was created, or will be created came into existence. 
By the very words of his mouth. Who here can do that? Who here creates from the very breath of his lungs? Who here has formed the image of man out of the dirt and then breathed into him his own spirit and seen that one come to life? You and I are not like God. The gulf is so enormously large and the holiness of God so immeasurably great that if it were not for Jesus, you and I would stand in the same irreverent position according to God's holiness as Uzzah himself did, being at the mercy of not a cruel God, but simply a raw, holy God. So the question then becomes, all right, like if we dealing with the holiness question over here and like what in the heck happened to Uzzah, then David, what you doing, bro? Like acting a little weird around the ark. Don't get it. Okay. It says in verse 5 in 2 Samuel chapter 6, right, we, have, we have two, th- two, two um, verses that kind of describe David's attitude. Verse 5, right? says, he was celebrating with all of his might. All of, celebrating with all of his might before the ark of God. And not just with all of his might, but he was employing the use of songs and harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. Like, like making the noise before the Lord. Celebrating before the ark the symbolized presence of God with them, celebrating before him. Verse 14, it says, uh, it says that, that David even put on the ephod, which is a, which something that a priest wore in cere- is a ceremonial garment, right? And, he, and, and wearing that, he danced before the Lord with all of his might. He and the entire house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets in verses 14 and 15. The question is, what was David doing? Well, at his very core, right, at the very basis, David was worshiping. He was worshiping. Now, why are these two dynamics connected. Why are the two dynamics of Uzzah dying and David worshiping connected? The holiness of God is the basis for all of our worship. The holiness of God. The fact that there is a holy God. That his presence has been made known. That he has made himself known to us through Jesus and through his word. That the basis of all of our worship is the holiness of God. We cannot worship rightly without recognizing his extraordinary holiness. And when we come to the place of recognizing the extraordinary holiness of God... We are left 
with only one realization. When, when, when face-to-face with or with en- encountered with the holiness of the Heavenly Father, we have really only one option. We must worship. Because we see, we come at that moment to the realization of the tremendous gap that there is between me and him. And the only response in that moment is this. Not, I'll sing if I like the song. But like a, oh, God is in the room. Like I dare to even speak. Heaven forbid we do not become so irreverent before the holiness of God. That we elevate our preferences and opinions <laughs> over the mere fact that he's in the room. I don't like the drums. David likes the drums. Our preferences don't matter. Our opinions don't matter. Our likes and dislikes don't matter. Right? The holiness of God was so tremendous that it struck someone dead. Can everyone agree, right? Can we all can we all come to the to the uh, to the agreement that that what is happening in heaven, like whatever happens in heaven, is probably not probably is the perfect example of God's will for you and I and all of existence. Can we come to that agreement? Like no one is in heaven right now, just doing his own thing. It's just completely autonomous. From the character, nature, will of God. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah, they're, they're over-worshipping the Father right now, but the bills are playing, and so I'll get to it later. Can we all agree? Nothing happening in heaven right now is, like, happening autonomously from, like, the will and plan and flow of the Heavenly Father. Yes? Okay. All right. What is happening in heaven right now? What is happening in heaven forever? What is happening for now all the way into eternity, no matter what, without exception? The writer in uh, Revelation says that, hey, look, everyone and everything is worshiping. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. And what are they, what are they talking about? God, we need you to do this for us. We need you to do this for us. We need you to do this for us. No, it's all about like, holy, holy, holy are you. Holy are you. Revelation chapter 4, just so you know I'm not making it up, right? Revelation chapter 4.
Revelation's that very last book in your Bible. The writer, the writer of Revelation describes the picture of the throne in heaven. Okay? Do, do I need to explain the importance of the throne in heaven? I shouldn't, right? The throne in heaven. Where the Lord is sitting. Okay? Let's just start at verse 6 for sake of brevity. Revelation 4, verse 6. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. I don't get it either, but look, it's heaven, okay? It's gonna, it's weird stuff's going to happen. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and was covered with eyes all around, even under their wings, day and, day, day and night. Day and night in the throne room of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, okay, so whenever they give glory to the one who sits on the throne. We just heard in the last verse that they're always giving glory to the one who sits on the throne. So read that as forever and ever, always, this is what's happening. The 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will, they were created and they have their being. And so the holiness of God wrapped up even in the midst of the recognition of his creation cries out because they have no other response in the midst of holiness to worship. And this was David's response. David in the moment of the presence of God coming into Jerusalem, David's response was, of, uh, was unhindered worship. He came unhinged from himself. And this is a good thing, okay? Don't, don't say that pejoratively. He came unhinged from himself. David's response in worship was so unhinged, so much so that he was willing David was willing, and he stated it. He was willing to be stripped of his earthly dignity, humiliated before the crowd, the nation of people that he served, that he was king over, and throw himself into celebration. And some followed, says in verse 5 and verse 15, that the People and the nation followed him. Now others looked upon him with apparent disregard and embarrassment. We read, right? Oh, geez, king, how distinguished you are for what you did among everyone else. And David's response in verse 21, like we stated, was very pointed and very clear. It was before the Lord 
Verse 21, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. It was before the Lord. Very important. David's audience was not the crowd. It's like, I was dancing before the Lord. I was celebrating before the Lord. I don't know what you were looking at. I don't know what you, I don't, I don't know what you were focused on. I don't know what you were worried about. I was worried about the fact that the Lord was in the room and I was being celebrated before him. That's where my eyes were. That's what my demeanor was. That's where my heart is. The reality is, is that, listen, you and I, David, you and I, we do not worship before or for anyone else. Our worship is not meant to be a show for anyone. We're not, we're not here, we don't, hold, we don't hold concerts every Sunday morning that can simply be observed as if the holiness of, the, of God is not at stake. It was before the Lord, David said. And David showed us, right, at the very heart for him what worship was. It was one, a recognition. It was a recognition of God's holiness. But it was also a willingness. Worship was a willingness of David to surrender his autonomy and his pride. It was a willingness for to surrender our pride. I will become even more undignified than this, David said. I will be humiliated for the sake of everyone in celebration of and worship before the Lord. I will lose my pride. I will lose my status. I will lose my title. I will lose my dignity. I will lose my role. I do not care. Worship is not for anyone else's benefit, it is not for anyone else's attention, it is not for anyone else's honor. See, because the reality is, is that for David, he was like, yeah, listen, you may think that I can be humiliated through this. You may think that I can lose my dignity by doing this, but well, listen, I can only be humiliated by you if I'm looking for your approval in my worship. I'm not looking for your approval. I'm not looking for you to like it. I'm not looking for you to accept it. I'm not looking for you to focus on me because every bit of focus you put on me is focus that is taken away from the Lord. When we have, like David had, uh, before the Lord, I worship, I'm doing this before the Lord, an audience of one perspective on worship, then humiliation, then embarrassment, then loss of dignity or anything like that, it cannot be foisted upon us. It cannot be, it cannot be something that someone else gives to us. Like we cannot be humiliated before the Lord when we worship him in his holiness and for his holiness. Now, I am, I am not unaware of even the, 
complexity of things like this, right? Where we're like, oh, okay, Pastor Cameron said, um, you only got to worry about yourself and worship and um, don't worry about what anyone else is thinking. Next week, I'm bringing a trash can lid and a wooden spoon, right? And when everyone else is singing, I'm going to be banging that thing, right? Like, listen, you liable to get throw yourself thrown right out of here, okay? <laughs> because in a moment like that, what do you do, right? You just draw all kinds of attention to who? Me! Like, you can actually, like, and there's good biblical precedent for this, right? That your exercise of freedom in relationship with the Lord can actually end up being a stumbling block for others' relationship with the Lord. And while we're not going to parse and distill out every single thing that we do and ask the question, hey, is this a stumbling block? Is this a stumbling block? Is this a stumbling block? We are going to act within what is relatively acceptable in our community, right? But without question, pursue and race after and reach for like worship that is that is unhinged from the expectations of others. Un, unhinged from the ideas of others. I don't care what this church is doing. I don't care what that church is doing. I don't care what this person is doing. I don't care what that person is doing. I care in this moment what I am doing. That's what matters. That's what matters. And so whether we have one person with a guitar or we have 10 people with a bunch of instruments, right? In the end, it all is a vehicle that we ride to the point of the holiness of God, the worship of God, the recognition of God in our midst. I don't really like worship because I really just come to church for the for the message. One, the messages aren't that good. Two, <laughs> two, like two, listen. Get a heart of worship now. Because it's what you're going to be doing for eternity if you walk with Jesus. And the reality is now, if you don't start to love it right now, right, you, you don't have a choice in the presence of God. Because the holiness of God leaves us with only one choice, right? Here. There's lots that we can say about worship I would like to. There's lots of, like, I often get some, like, real practical questions about worship. Like, okay, we love the music. We love to sing. Why does everyone raise their hands? Right? Why does everyone raise their hands? It's like, it's a question I get, right? And it's, it's a good one, right? If you didn't grow up in the church or you're not sure, or you're developing your relationship, there's no embarrassment here. There's no shame here. You like, th those are real questions. Like, Virtually no place else, and you're not going to go to Wegmans, and people are not going to walk around with their hands in the air, all right? Like, it happens here. It happens in places here where the, where the holiness of God is being celebrated. But what, what is that? Well, what is the universal 
What is the almost universal symbol of I surrender? Right? What is the universal heart of every worshiper? I surrender. Before the holiness of God, before the name of God, laying down my pride, laying down my status, laying down my title, laying down my dignity, I will be humiliated even more, and I will become even more undignified than this before the Lord. I surrender all that I am. Whatever I want, whatever I need, Lord, it's all about you in this moment. It's all about your holiness. I surrender. So hands in the air are not just some, even just some benign show of what we're trying to do, but it actually is a symbolic act of, Lord, it's, I recognize that it's not about me. Lord, I surrender my will, I surrender my heart, I surrender my worship to you. Two dynamics that I think we, we're going to pray into this, this morning. Um, let's pray into becoming, like, having the Holy Spirit, like, communicate to our spirits the tremendous holiness of God. Lord, let us get a picture. And then on the other side, like, Lord, in moments where we are, where we are tempted to make worship about us. Lord, bring us back to the center. As uh, I have Billy and Eric come back up, and as they're coming up, let's pray into those very two, um, those two realities. Heavenly Father, It is only through it is only through Jesus that we can even come into this moment. It is only through Jesus that we have access to speak to you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus. That you have You have seen it fit, Lord. Father, it becomes so, it has become so easy for us who live in a very irreverent society in a very irreverent time to have minuscule understanding or perception of your tremendous holiness. Lord, not asking to be killed, literally, by your holiness. But Father, reveal, reveal in a gentle way, Lord, the power of you 